This episode of The New Disruptors is sponsored by Smile Software and Bespoke Post. Welcome to The New Disruptors. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, a recovering typesetter. The New Disruptors is made possible through the help of sponsors. If you'd like to sponsor the program, visit podlexing.com for more information. That's P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G.com. People dream of the open road, but do they dream of hitting the highway with thousands of pounds of metal type? Kyle Dury did, and she spent the last two years crisscrossing America like a Janie type seed. She funded her initial excursions almost three years ago through Kickstarter for The Type Truck, a converted van from which she teaches about letterpress, type, and printing. Her power and light press relocated its permanent home last year from Portland, Oregon, to a small town in New Mexico, from which state she still takes tours when the roads cooperate. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Thank you. Happy to be here. Glad to have you on. Now, we, we met a few years ago when you were passing through Seattle on the first, uh, one of the first legs of your type truck trip. It's true. How that many, was, oh, I think that was day, sorry, this, I think that was day <laughs> two of the trip. Oh, you left Portland and come north, right? And there was a, a print, a printing shop you were working with here, or a, That's a right. gallery. Uh, how many miles are on the van now? Oh, boy. Uncountable? Uh, I think I have put on about 40,000 miles. Oh, that's uh, good. Since I first left, which was June of 2011. So um, a few circuits of the country then. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The first, the first tour was the biggest and that lasted me about 11 months. And I think on that one tour, I did about 31,000 miles. Oh my gosh. And then this past year has been uh, much more restrained than that. Can you describe what the inside of the type truck is like? Yeah, it's beautiful in there. It's uh so it's an old linens delivery truck. So, you know, picture a food truck style. And um the interior I totally renovated, gutted everything that was in there and then built in cabinets and a bunk and um kind of closet space and just general workspace. It's kind of a galley setup. So there's a central central aisle and then on either side I have um cabinets and countertops with two printing presses and a furniture cabinet and, uh, you know, drawers for type and ink and paper and all sorts of supplies that I might need. And then at the very back, I have a sleeping bunk uh, where I spent many a night, uh, many a comfortable night. It was a really <laughs> cozy little space that became a, a true home for me for nearly a year. Well, I think a lot of people, you know, look to settle down and they want to uh base of operations that they're in, but you've always had kind of a, a wandering bug, haven't you? I mean, this isn't an unusual departure for you to, to take off. Maybe the form is unusual, but not not in your right. nature. Right. It's definitely the biggest road trip I've ever taken, but um, I have been kind of restless for the past 10 years or so, um, taking countless cross-country trips for pleasure and for just relocation. I've moved you know, from the East Coast to the West, back East, back West, and now to the Southwest. A uh, number of times over the last seven to ten years, so I definitely enjoy. I mean, I love getting out in the road and and seeing things. And this this trip on the scale that it that it was was a very different way of experiencing everything, and gave me a much deeper insight into what it means to be on the road and to travel and what this country is all about and who I am and all that all that good stuff. 
Well, you know, we talked about this back when um, well, I wrote an Economist article when you were in town about what you were doing, and you were almost literally recapitulating, maybe with more modern, <laughs> movable <laughs> technology, the truck, the idea of the journeyman that that mm-hmm. in the old days and the guild days, and this was true with type also, is that you'd have to apprentice for a while, and then once you apprentice, you didn't just sort of set up shop in most places. You had to go around and and learn more, and there was a stage through which you did that before you became kind of a master and could run your own shop under guild rules. Did mm-hmm. that enter your mind? Were you feeling like this might be a little bit of a of a journey from one stage in your life to another and, and this was part of it? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I had, yeah, the, the apprenticeship nowadays is essentially non-existent. You know, my, I, I did, <laughs> I did apprentice with other printers, but it, you know, it was six months in one shop and four months in another. And then that was it. And, uh, I kind of knew back in those, I mean, this was six or five or six years ago when I did that, the, my apprenticeships. And I knew that when I finished those sessions that I, I had learned a ton, but I was nowhere near. I mean, I certainly wasn't, there was no chance of me being considered a master printer by traditional terms, but I kind of wanted to figure out the rest on my own. And I think that's a privilege of modern times is that you you can get away with that. Um, But when I set out on this trip, I think it was kind of a a means for me to continue my education. You know, I had at that point when I started the the travels, I had been working independently for about three years and had gotten into a bit of a rut, I think, because I had kind of run up against the limits of kind of what I felt like I could push myself into and the kind of work that I was doing. And so getting out on the road and meeting other printers and other artists and writers and just you know, all the other random people that would come out and and see the truck, that forced me into new territory and definitely was a huge part of my education. You know, it it taught me how to teach and it taught me how to learn more. And it's, it's opened up a whole new direction that I'm kind of heading in nowadays. Well, it must have been great too, to be exposed to all these people. I mean, where you went, sometimes you were the only person who knew about this area, but other times you were working with very experienced people. And and I, I hope, was that a learning experience there too, to go into all these different shops and festivals? Oh yeah. I mean, it was so, there was every, the people that I met was so varied and the, the places I went were so varied that, you know, every day was, was different. And, you know, there were certainly a number of days where I would be in someone else's studio um, just kind of, you know, in awe of their studio setups and the kind of work that they were doing. And it was, that was hugely inspiring for me. And then the next day I would be, you know, working with a group of people who had never even considered the notion of movable type before. And that was so neat too, because I could say, look how cool these, they're like blocks, you know, like this is a whole different way of thinking about text and publishing and, and imagery. And I think that balance um, is kind of what kept me motivated for as long as, I was out there. It just I, if I had been interacting with the same kind of people day after day, I think it would have gotten exhausting. And it was it was exhausting, but it was it was uh, invigorating at the same time, just because of the variety. And you said you you'd spent some time working in shops and and learning the trade. What is your background before that? I mean, did you come to this as a, somebody who wanted to be a printer, wanted to produce printed works, or a designer, or is this a, a new direction for you a few years ago? Um, I came at it from a from an art background in college. I I was an art student and I was focusing in drawing and printmaking. But we didn't have letterpress. I just uh, in my department we just had a uh, one etching press. So I learned a little bit about etching and woodblock carving. And I loved being in the print shop. And I you know did my student employment. You know I was the the lab tech in the print shop. So I'd take care of 
all the gnarly chemicals and <laughs> solutions that we use. And uh, I just really loved printing. But I, you know, when I graduated, I no longer had access to that shop anymore. So I was like, okay, well, I guess printing is kind of out of the picture for now. And I focused on drawing for a few years until I kind of hit a creative wall and decided to move to Portland, Oregon and just kind of, you know, start a new chapter of my life. I was 25 or 26 at the time. And right after I got there, I was looking for work and, you know, it's it being Portland, there are no jobs and it, it being January, it was raining and I just like, <laughs> I just needed something. And so I was just looking online at, at classes that I could take just to kind of give myself something constructive to do. And I found a letterpress class and I kind of thought, well, I don't, I'm not sure I know what that is. Like, you know, I didn't really have a sense of what letterpress really was, but it sounded, sounded interesting. And it kind of, I thought, Hey, it'd be really nice to get back into a print shop for a while. And so I signed up for this class and walked into this, this room on day one. This was at um, Pratt Art Center in Seattle, actually. Um, I had, I had missed enrollment for all the classes in Portland and I just, I was like, kind of got this bug in my ear about it. I just wanted to start right away. So I started going up to Seattle for, for classes at Pratt and um, just fell in love with it instantly. I think at the time it, I was craving, I, I was in this creative rut and I was craving being creative and working with my hands again. And for some reason I just couldn't, I couldn't get my drawings to work the way that I wanted them to work. And working with type all of a sudden gave me a means to use my hands and create things without, you know, over conceptualizing them. And it was just kind of a, I could go into it kind of blindly and, and feel a little bit dumb and not feel bad about that because it was a whole new world. There's something kind of fun about when you get into the craft of it and you've got this type you can work with. You didn't have to make the type, you know, mm -hmm. if you're, you've got wood yeah. type and metal, you've got all this stuff in front of you. Sometimes you've got ornaments and leftover etched blocks someone else made or you find things you want to print from and you can put them together and mess around with them and get some benefit and joy out of just doing the craft part exactly, not, or doing things for other people. And you don't have to always engage, you know, your full aesthetic artistic mm -hmm. intent in it while you're doing that portion of it. Exactly. And I think, and that was definitely what appealed right away is like, Oh, I can just, I can just do this. I can just make something and it doesn't, I don't care what it is necessarily. I just, the process of making something feels really good. And of course, as I've learned more about printing, you know, I'm finding the, all the ways you can marry the craft side of it with the creative artistic side of it, with the production side of it. And it, it kind of, to me, it just, it allows me to kind of um, explore all those different areas in one, within one single form. Well, you do this cool thing too, which is that usually when you talk about printing, it's this very fixed thing because unless you're carrying a, you know, a digital inkjet printer around or something, or even an old, you know, I used to lug laser printers that weighed 30 or 50 pounds mm -hmm. uh, around. But like you think about letterpress, you're like, thousands of pounds, maybe tons of metal, tons right. of type, an operation, you know, cleaning, like the whole thing. But it, I, I love how you reconceptualize it and said, I could stick this all in a truck. Where did <laughs> that idea come from? Because that's not, I don't think anyone else is doing anything quite like that. I've heard about mobile, like printmaking operations where the people mm -hmm. might bring prints out and, and, uh, and so forth. But I haven't s heard anyone else say, I think it would be a great idea to build a letterpress truck. So this, mm -hmm. this, this came from somewhere. What did you did you find the truck first? I forgot where that part of the story happened. 
Well, it was no, it was kind of a, a fantasy for a little while, and and the true inspiration because you're, you're right. I mean, letterpress printing, all the equipment doesn't it doesn't <laughs> lend itself to you know the open road and and spontaneous mobility, and that was something that was kind of nagging at me for a little while. My partner is a musician, and he goes on tour with his band and by himself a lot, and. I was feeling, for a while, I was feeling a little bit jealous. You know, I was like, oh, these guys can just pick up and go. And, you know, I'm <laughs> tethered here with my 10 tons of lead and wood. Your, 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 your chains are forged from lead, yeah, antimony, and tin. exactly. I'll never leave town again. But I I took a little break one summer. This was, this must, this is three years ago now, in 2010. And I, um, I joined up with Justin's band, um, Run On Sentence, uh, for one part of their cross country tour, I, I went out to Maine to visit some friends, and then I they traveled through, and then I I drove back with them out to Portland, Oregon. And it was on that trip that this idea started kind of taking shape because, you know, seeing them do their thing, you know, unload all their gear every day for their shows, that was like the first thing that went off my mind. I was like, oh wait a minute, it's still a hassle. <laughs> like they've got all this equipment too, but. But they do it, and and all these musicians do it. It's just such a no brainer for a band to hit the road as part of their work. In fact, a lot of a lot of musicians, that's the only way they can make a living is going on tour. Yeah, um, they're carrying weight. They have thousands of pounds of stuff. It's just distributed into slightly smaller boxes, typically. Exactly. Yeah, but you know, these guys had it was three guys, and between them, they had you know a guitar, an amplifier, a, an upright bass, a drum kit. And, you know, all sorts of chords and pedals and all the other stuff. And it was crammed into the back of a minivan. And so I was like, well, I know I'd, I wouldn't want to live in a minivan necessarily or or have to unload my stuff all the time. But, you know, I could potentially build out. At first, I was thinking kind of like a, a, tra- a trailer, like a travel trailer, you know, fit it out with those existing cupboards that are that are in a travel trailer and, you know, maybe make a little traveling studio out of that. So that was kind of the first idea. And then the more I started thinking about it, I, I kind of scrapped the trailer idea because I would need a vehicle to tow it and my you know, my car is too small. And so I started looking at more, you know, enclosed uh, trucks. And that's when the whole kind of box truck or, um, you know, step van idea came about. But it was it really was on that tour. And I spent three weeks driving from Maine to Oregon, just kind of observing the guys and seeing how they traveled and how how different that style of travel was than any other road trip I'd taken before and it really got me thinking that that was something I would want to do you know they got a chance to share their music with people and have that be a way to to make connections and meet other musicians and other artists and it just kind of opened up new doors in these towns you know you go on a normal road trip you might stop somewhere for lunch get back in the car, kind of keep going. You still get to see a lot of stuff, but you're kind of like flying through. But I loved the way that, that the tour was structured, where you actually spent time in a town, even if it's just for a night, got to know people. It just really kind of gave you a, a deeper sense of, of what these towns and in-between spaces were all about. And that was really appealing to me. Oh, that's wonderful. So you get a, you get a tie into the community. It's not mm-hmm. I'm a tourist. It's not I'm passing through. It's you get to have a, a temporary connection and actually exactly. form a bond. But it's, yeah. it's, it's fascinating too because it's through the art, right? The you know musicians perform. People come and hear. It's a communal experience. 
printing has typically not been a communal experience, but right. I, I know that part of your trip was, well, we should talk about the Kickstarter and then how you planned the, the first long leg from it, because I think my dad was the first one to back this. I don't think I... That's I don't, right. I don't remember if I backed your campaign, because you went to Port Townsend, where he lives. That's right. After Seattle. And he said, you got to look at this, because he knows I have a long interest in typesetting and printing and letterpress. And I was like, this is just... It was, I thought it was wonderful. And he was, he was glad to meet you when you, when you were up in uh, Port Townsend as well, which has a rich... Um, bizarrely deep printing and um, like letterpress and uh, publishing tradition for being a tiny, tiny town. Huh, uh-huh. And I was taken by the idea that you would try this, that and and also that you're going to Kickstarter because you had a plan that you wanted to travel. So you actually could, you know, a lot of times people are doing something locally. You really have to mm-hmm. turn to a local audience because um, I had this great experience. I'm going to sidebar for a second. I had this great experience. There's a guy on Twitter I've known now for years named Yanni who lives in North Carolina. And he and his wife ran an ice cream truck, of course. They go out to festivals. Mm-hmm. They wanted a permanent location. And he's a super guy. I love him. And um, he was asked for some advice about his Kickstarter. He did his, I forget, like two years ago, a year and a half ago. And of course I backed it. I have no plans to ever go to North Carolina. Mm, I right. might get there at some point. Recently, I was like, you know, I, he still owes me a pint of ice cream. <laughs> I wonder if I can give it, pay it forward. And on Twitter, I say, anybody knows someone in North Carolina who's near Raleigh who wants a pint of ice cream? I've got one for you for free. In the end, someone who lives in Washington State, his niece lives in North in, in Raleigh. And I said, great, let me hook you up through Twitter. I hooked them all up. She went and got her pint. And I thought, this is the best thing in the world. That's better That's than so wonderful. even eating it myself. But there's that sort of intensely low thing. It's very hard, of course, to, mm-hmm. you know, gift certain kinds of things. And there's that people want to support what you're doing conceptually, but you were going to travel. So it seemed to me you had a, an audience built in who said, yeah, yeah, I want to back this. And you could also come here or maybe I'll get to meet you as you come through. Had, mm-hmm. had you planned your schedule or had a loose outline of a schedule before you started the Kickstarter or just leap into it and say, I'm going to figure it out once I know if it's feasible to make the truck happen? I just leapt into it, you know, at that, at that point. Yeah. At this whole, I mean, this whole thing has just, I've been flying by the seat of my pants and it's, uh, it's kind of given me more faith in operating that way. (laughs) You had a very reasonable goal though. You're only looking for $8,000. You had already, yeah, which was insane. It was, it wound up being way too little, of course, right? Uh, Oh yeah. I mean, you know, at that point when I launched the Kickstarter, the only, you know, quote unquote research I had done was looking on Craigslist to see what a, a, a step van might cost me. And, and so I had a pretty good reference for that. I thought I could probably get a decent truck for around $4,000. And then I knew that the remaining 4000 wasn't going to, that wasn't going to cover the whole trip. Cause I didn't even know what the trip was at that point. Um, I kind of had this idea that it would probably be at least six months. Like I knew it was going to be substantial, but beyond that, I had no idea. And you got to save um, rent too, right? You knew you were going to be in this journey for a while, right. so you, you could throw your stuff into storage somewhere and hit the road. Exactly. Yeah, but I hadn't. There were so many things I hadn't factored into the the initial Kickstarter funds and just the whole the way the rest of the trip was going to play out. And it was kind of a beautiful thing. Like I, I feel like uh, what you just said about it it being you know the fact that I was traveling, um, being able to generate more interest, and it's not just a local project. There was a the more I've thought about this Kickstarter experience, I've I think that I might the timing of it and the shape of the project was kind of like a perfect storm. You know, the fact that at the times so this was fall of two thousand ten, Kickstarter was was fairly new. You know, I think it had been around for a year maybe. 
and was was really gaining momentum then and it but it hadn't quite yet reached the point where of oversaturation where That's like right, yeah. everybody was doing a kickstarter project and like your facebook feed was you know just flooded with like hey donate to this you could be the first in any category at that point there were a lot of categories yeah. there were only thousands of projects maybe i mean there had gone to thousands by then but there weren't like 15 letterpress projects or 100 exactly. at that point Right. Yeah. And, and, and on that same point, I think at that point, I mean, letterpress is still popular, but I think two years ago it was, um, or t- almost two and a half years ago, it was really gaining momentum. People were getting interested. A lot more people were hearing, kind of, you know, figuring out what it was. Designers were getting, graphic designers were getting interested in having their work printed on letterpress. And I think it was pretty hot at that time. And also just the travel, the travel aspect, you know, everyone loves a good road story. Let's pause so I can tell you a bit about Smile Software, one of this week's sponsors. Now, I've used Smile Software's products for years, and they make software that you don't always know you need it until you start to use it, and then you can't do without it. Now, take Text Expander, for instance. Text Expander is a macro expansion program, which sounds kind of boring when I say it that way. And macro programs have been around forever. But what Text Expander does is it lets you Put the power at your fingers instead of having to retype things tediously. That's what computers are for. You want to type a few keystrokes and have something that you need to use all the time, your name, your address, and just have it fill in. Now, in the latest version, they added a lot of great new features. So not only can you insert, as you could in the past, like a date, a time, a salutation, a signature, but you can also add fill-in forms. So you can create a form response and have just the spots that you need to fill in and add those. This is really quite useful. I also use it with URL shorteners like bit.ly. You can take a URL, put it on your clipboard, and then just type a keystroke, a slash, and then for me it's gbit.ly. It goes out to the service over the internet, generates the shortcut with my account, brings it back, and replaces the contents of the clipboard with the shortened URL. Now, Text Expander works on the Macintosh, but there's also an iOS version that works with 140 apps. Now, in iOS, you can use your shortcuts that you created on the desktop or create new ones in iOS and then use them with any of these 140 apps like Day One, IA Writer, Byword, OmniFocus, and Things. There's a list of compatible apps on Smile's website. Smile makes other useful software too, like PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro. Uh, you can find out more about Text Expander and all their other products if you go to smilesoftware.com slash ND. That's ND like new disruptors. Let them know we sent you. And now let's get back to talking about Type Truck. Oh, yeah. I mean, you had a great – that's the thing is you had a compelling story. It always helps, right? Is that is, mm-hmm. And you know that. I mean, you're, you're – uh, I think you've got an intuitive sense of how to market yourself without exploiting yourself. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you for well, saying that because you, you never know. <laughs> well, you tell your story genuinely. It's not like you don't have a travel bug or you had an alter- ulterior plan or agenda. Right. It's like you're like, I'm going to put the hard work in. Here's mm-hmm. my plan. I have no idea exactly what it's going to cost, but I think this will make it happen. And mm-hmm. and let's go. And I yeah. think that was very appealing. It's I think it, that was the year, uh, if I'm remembering right, I think I had just come off myself a type conference in Seattle. It was the first one they did at the School of Visual Concepts. Yes. Yeah. So that was the American Type Conference, which was one of the best events I've ever attended about type or design, and it was such a modest thing. You know, a couple hundred people squeezed into some beautiful rooms at SVC. And SVC also in Seattle also teaches type classes mm-hmm. uh, along with, um, you know, Pratt. I mean, we have an abundance of letterpress mm-hmm. in Seattle, and Portland is 
I think is ahead of us in some ways in terms of that, mm-hmm. this weird Northwest interest in letterpress. And so I had I'd gone to that conference and just been buzzing about it. I'd done hands-on work with the folks from the Hamilton Wood Type Museum had mm-hmm. come out and do, done half-day workshops. So I'd been working with, lead, you know, what are the stuff? And I had not worked with letterpress for like 20 years. And I thought mm-hmm. it had died. I did not realize how vibrant it was. So I'm going through this. Then I see your project. I took a class that spring at SVC or that winter at SVC, uh, the most the w- most uh, snowy winter in Seattle, I think. So dodging <laughs> snowy roads to go and handle letterpress. And but it all seemed to be a lot of it was happening at the same time, not just in Seattle, but clearly around America. I kept hearing more and more people restoring um, linotype, uh, the hot metal printers. The C.C. Stern Museum in Portland is a monotype uh, caster museum that was just getting underway. I visited them not that much much after that, in fact. And uh, um, it was a very weird time because letterpress mm-hmm. dates back 500 years. <laughs> it had practically died as a commercial thing. And then suddenly everyone's kind of, oh, letterpress, letterpress, letterpress. Right. And here you are with this say- thing saying, I could come and show you what it's about. I can bring enough to show you what letterpress is about. It seems pretty mm-hmm. compelling in, in terms of the timing and, and what you were pitching. I, th- You know, I think I, I felt the same way. And I was coming at it from a point in my in my studio and my work where I had been printing, you know, I had a modest uh, greeting card line that I really enjoyed, but mostly I'd been printing custom work, you know, wedding invitations and things like that, and just not feeling satisfied with it and feeling like I was getting too involved in the overly preciousness that letterpress can. um, The deep uh, impression, the let us push that type deep, deep, deep into the paper, right? Into cotton paper. And I was just kind of feeling bored with that. And it was, it was not why I had fallen in love with printing in the first place. It had nothing to do with making the perfect, beautiful wedding invitation. And there are plenty of other, you know, printers and designers out there that 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 is their work and they love it and they're great at it. And I just thought, you know, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna let them have it. Like I need to do something <laughs> different. And to me, printing has been a big part of printing has been the fact that it's it's making a multiple. It's basically making something more accessible to people. And um, whether it's information or just an object, it's, I thought, you know, if I can really explore that and truly make it accessible, how cool would that be? Like, what would, you know, what could I offer people and what could I also get out of that? And just the idea of taking it on the road and just showing people how it's done was so rewarding from a teaching standpoint, but also it got me to shift my approach to how I print. You know, I got way more excited about just the process of setting the type or, inking it up and pulling that first proof. It was no longer about, you know, the pursuit of the perfect print. It was just about the act of printing and the excitement that goes into that. And sure, the finished print is exciting as well. And I think it is important, but it's not the be all end all. Well, you know, one of the things that the listeners who haven't never done letterpress or, or felt it or seen it in person may not understand is how much it's a, it's a full body action. I mean, the stuff's mm. heavy. You got to you get yourself incredibly dirty from it, even if you know you got your apron on, but you're still going to get your hands covered mm-hmm. with ink or uh, you know cleaner or whatever. And it's, uh, I think there's something about that you have to. It's not just that it's tactile, but that it's, it's something you have to. It's movable type, and you have to move it. You got to pick it up right. and move it, rack things down, close it into space, pull stuff over, pull prints off, and everything mm-hmm. is. Even if you're doing multiples, even if you take this incredible attention to detail every print's going to be a little different because every mm-hmm. piece of paper is different. Every impression, the ink viscosity could be slightly different. And mm-hmm. that's the thing that seemed to me you could share is that you could bring that 
real-world tactile thing. You can watch as many videos about letterpress as you want. You can sit in front of a computer and design as many pages as you want. But it seemed that you were offering people, I'm going to come out and show people what it's like to actually handle, you know, to do this thing that was a craft for millions and millions of people over 500 years, now has virtually disappeared. I can show you what this is about and you can touch it, put your hands mm-hmm. on it. Oh, yeah. And that it never got old to watch someone, whether it was a five-year-old kid or like a six-year-old adult, you know, to to lift that paper up. I mean, I was using the sign press to make their print, lift that paper up. And even if it was like the ugliest print in the world, just the sheer delight on their faces, like, oh, I made that. Like, I just, I just did that. And, you know, it's like just that feeling of, of like physicality and of using your hands that, you know, a, a lot of us are spending more and more time in front of our computers nowadays, which is, which are, I, I love my computer and it's a really important tool, but I think there is an increasing disconnect between what we're capable of doing with our hands and it's, it feels really good to, to get physical and to get your hands dirty and to make something and to see, to watch people go through that process in the matter of, a matter of like 20 seconds and then just to see that look on their face of like, oh my God, I just did that. <laughs> it was so cool. And that never got old for me. It's, I mean, I just, uh, it's, I feel like I should go back and do more letterpress. It's time, it's time consuming. You have to find a place to do it or have your own mm-hmm. equipment. And the equipment's become very expensive. Actually, in the, the latest issue of uh, the magazine, I go to the, mm-hmm. the org and you can read the letterpress article that, uh, my friend Nancy Goring wrote about Seattle. And one of my instructor from the class at SVC pointed out that, Presses that were a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars like several years ago are now selling for ten thousand to fifteen thousand dollars, and yeah. you still have to overhaul them. You still have to rebuild them practically. But mm-hmm. no one's making new. I mean, the the you can't make new letterpress equipment. Right. You can make new type. We, we'll talk about that later. You can um, make new wood type. You can make uh, modern photopolymer, plastic, or rubberized plates that you can use to print. You know, we can make paper, but you, mm-hmm. the presses, the the old style presses. I think our the manufacturing base of our economy, the global economy, doesn't exist to make cast iron right. stuff like that. So it's every piece that's mm-hmm. in somebody's garage or an old warehouse has become ten times more valuable. Oh yeah, it's gone from and it's sp- like a treasure hunt. Yeah, to, scrap you know? to gold. Yep. <laughs> What's cool though is, and one thing that I learned from traveling around is that there are a lot more um, kind of community print shops that are opening up, which is kind of what where I used to do my work in Portland was out of a studio called M space, which was a membership based studio. So we had probably eight or nine presses that were owned independently by individual members, but they were accessible to anyone who became a member of the studio. Oh, that's fantastic. And I'm finding, you know, the, the model changes from place to place, but I, I did encounter a lot of community shops so people could have access to taking classes or doing their own work without having to make the investment of, you know, purchasing their own equipment and having their own space. And I think that's a really nice model. It's like the makerspace thing. Well, that's yeah. interesting too because we introduced the interview the uh, um, folks at Maker House, the Seattle makerspace that opened uh, earlier this year, mm-hmm. and their deal, which is true of a lot of makerspaces, I shouldn't make it sound unique, is they have you know two D laser cutters and three D printers and all kinds of modern you know digital computer lab with all the or should I say digital sorry a computer lab with three D right. software with Rhino you know five thousand dollars software installed, but they also have a complete wood 
shop and metal shop. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think – I don't want to say that was less typical, but it's pretty clear now that any of these makerspaces getting started up have to have the analog part. You can't just do the one to maybe call for it, but people keep moving back and forth. They want to prototype something, but then they need to test out a manufacturing thing or they right. need to do something at a scale or a cost that is prohibitive with the digitally controlled tools. They can't get a router to do it, but they could do it by hand with a lathe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea. I didn't realize – I mean uh, the School of Visual Concepts, I'll mention again, is they've got this huge, wonderful, beautiful lab that I'm sure you've seen uh, too. It's one I haven't of, actually. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, you should – the next time you're in Seattle, it's a beautiful shop. It's one of the best letterpress shops I've ever been in in, mm. in my life. I mean it reminds me of the old days. It's, it's spick and span. They have a lot of different equipment. It's just wonderful. But if you're – once you've taken classes there, I believe once you get tested out in the equipment, they, I think you can go in and use it at other times too. So it's not exactly – the same thing, but they have, you know, 10 presses in there of different kinds. And mm-hmm. I know what you brought with you. You didn't bring a full, I mean, full-scale press. If you brought even um, the, the, like a Vandercook is a galley press, and I don't know what that weighs, like 14,000 pounds. Yeah. Well. I have no idea. <laughs> they, they had to reinforce the floors at SVC. It's on the second uh-huh. floor there. They had to make sure. Same, but, you know, so you brought smaller presses, but you, but it, it's amazing. I was at Carl Montford's house, who's a Seattle printer, is a kind of the mm-hmm. old man of printing here, helped build the letterpress revival in Seattle. And he had this press. I thought it was a joke. He said, no, no, it's real. And it was practically, you could fit it in two hands. It was like a <laughs> tiny business card press. Uh-huh. And I thought those were a joke. I'd never seen it before. You had something a bit larger. That You had a couple yeah. different kinds of presses with you, I should say. I had two presses in the truck and they were quite a bit larger than, than the, I think there was it a there's like a Baltimorean and a Daisy those little tiny ones you're talking about. Yeah, I think those so are they're, what they're called. Cute. He has they're like so every cute. he has like you know you can get a saxophone in every size from. Have you ever seen a soprano sax and they're ridiculously tiny? And um, <laughs> I've seen those at Disneyland. There's you know soprano, alto, bass, uh-huh. whatever. He has a press of every size from from <laughs> like microscopic to you know I don't know size of the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the presses I had in the truck were small enough to fit in the truck and not. You know, I mean, I had so much additional weight going in there, you know, from everything combined that I didn't want a single press to, you know, weigh 2,000 pounds. So I already had a five by seven and a half inch Golding official number three, which is a small tabletop platen press. And um, it's the kind of press, you know, it stands probably two and a half feet tall, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, when when its arm is up. So it's it's a... It's a nice, dainty press that it was non-intimidating, which was really important when you're trying to teach someone how to use a press. Like, they can be scary, the big ones. Oh, and a kid so could operate one, it, too, because you don't need as much yeah, presser as for the bigger yes, presses. Yes, exactly. It's all hand-operated, so it's easy to use. You know, if you're tall enough to kind of reach the handle, it's, it's easy to use. And that, I could print up to, you know, kind of a four-by-six-inch area with that. That kind of maxed out the printing area. But I would use that one if I was doing, like, a little business card demonstration or you know bookmarks or really small stuff postcards and things and then I had a sign press which is a flatbed style press it's kind of like the a very very stripped down basic you know the, the poor man's Vandercook kind of thing um, <laughs> that was all it's all manual it doesn't have it you ink it by hand with a brayer uh, you lay your paper on top and you roll basically just roll it's essentially like a glorified rolling pin that's locked into a track roll that across to make the impression. That also was a very simple press and really user-friendly, approachable. You could gather around it so that if I was doing a workshop with multiple people, we could all kind of gather around and see what was going on and contribute 
to the typesetting. These are also very hard to hurt yourself with because of the yes. size and the nature of them. You can't get fingers and clothing really easily caught in and, and exactly. So forth. Yeah, it is. It's possible, but it's it's uh, it's 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 more difficult. Unfortunately, that never happened. You see, you know, this whole process of, of equipping the truck is. I mean, there are multiple things you had to do, and you wound up raising uh, seventeen grand. So I know without after fees and everything else, that you know winds up being almost two thousand dollars less. But so mm-hmm. you got fifteen something thousand dollars and all the support and a commitment now. When it was done, because I know um, I was looking back at the Kickstarter to remind me, and and you had committed. To five hundred dollar pledgers, you had six people who you're going to go and do a private workshop in their driveway, mm-hmm. which is super cool. And mm-hmm. then eight people who paid two hundred fifty bucks or more, and you said you would guarantee to visit their town. So you had mm-hmm. some locations. Now you have a map, and you're starting to put what like fourteen pins on it exactly. to start with. How did you get from pile of money, <laughs> not a big pile of money, but a pile of money, and a commitment to getting on the road? I know you've documented mm-hmm. that on your blog, but that seems a little daunting. It was a little daunting, but you know, honestly, when I when the Kickstarter thing ended, well, there was a, there was a point about halfway into it where I reached the or no, it was early on where I reached my goal, and it just the money just kept coming in. So I had I had about three or four weeks to kind of grapple with what that meant that I was going to be able to do more than what I originally thought I would be able to do in terms of the scope of the trip and like how many places I could go and how far off the beaten path I could go, you know, having more money come in definitely allowed for that. And when, when it all ended, I think it was like January 3rd, I was in a motel in Austin with some friends (laughs) and, um, woke up and, you know, I had a final tally for how much money I had made. And that was for me, I mean, that was a huge sum of money. And, and even if it had only been $8,000, like that's $8,000 more than I had had the day before. So I just felt like I was on top of the world. I I felt like I could do anything. And, um, if I need more money than what I was getting, I would figure it out. So the first step that very day I started, I got on Craigslist with my two friends and we started looking at trucks and we found the one that day. I didn't know it was the one right away, but I ended up, you know, a week or so later, finally calling that guy and seeing if I could come take a look. But I spent the next two months basically in what I called kind of my residency hibernation planning mode. Mm-hmm. And I, my first step was, was kind of like my inspiration residency. And so I went to Hamilton Wood Type Museum in Two Rivers, Wisconsin. I'm so jealous, by the way. I've now sent a reporter. <laughs> I've talked to so many people who have gone there, and I sent a reporter there for the magazine for a for a wood type story, and they're the nicest people. Well, I met uh, Jim oh, Moran yeah. and his brother, Bill, were out mm-hmm. in Seattle. They're the nicest people, and this museum is the most incredible thing because the history of type in America, not to get too far off our disruption topic, mm-hmm. but the history of type in America is like the opposite of disruption. Everything came to a head. You had one giant wood type company that was a vicious competitor and literally destroyed the wood templates of its competitors when it bought them out. Which it's is brutal. Oh, you talk to people today. I've, I mean, I've talked to these older fellows and so forth involved in the younger people, both sexes involved in type. And you talk about Hamilton, they're like, those guys at Hamilton, they would buy up another firm and they would destroy their type because it was almost like spite because they wanted uh-huh. a monopoly. And the same thing with metal type. You had American type founders who bought everyone else up. They didn't destroy the type. But these Giant monopolies. It's such an opposite of what we're trying to do today where you oh, have decentralization. But anyway, so Hamilton Wood Type, I'm sorry. So they're, they're, they were founded on the, the remains of this 100-year monopoly of Wood Type collapsed. A mm-hmm. scientific company bought out the remains because there was like a wood 
laboratory furniture division, I think. Yeah, they had branched into into cabinetry. Oh, that's um, it. Yeah, they'd always made so, the type cabinets, but right. Right, they went off to other areas of cabinetry. Mm-hmm. And there was like, you know, kitchen stuff and like lab furniture and things like that. You know, one last division in, in Two Rivers making the lab furniture, then that got shut down mm-hmm. and the type museum had to move. So you went to the the old location. This their, was the old location. Their original location, which was essentially the place where the wood had been, type had been made and housed for a hundred years. Right. Yeah. It's a, a big factory building. I mean, it's the anchor of that town is this big warehouse. Huge complex. Huge. It, it was interesting to be there because, you know, the that industry had changed so much and then this scientific company was that was kind of the the industry in town at that point you know it still is the industry in town i would go out to this coffee shop and talk to you know these old timers about what i was doing in town where i was from and i'd say oh i'm here at the at the wood type museum and and i'm so excited and they'd kind of look at me like why <laughs> like, oh my god story. yeah <laughs> i know different perspectives um, well, half—I mean, a t- bunch of the town. You know, if you anybody who was above fifty, they had worked in in Hamilton's facilities or something like it mm-hmm. in that that complex because that's where everybody worked in town, just about. Right, right, yeah. So they had to move um, just this past year. I mean, they're still—I think they're still moving into their new location. They're still in Two Rivers. Just about to open officially. Like they got a bunch right. of stuff unpacked. It's very—they're very excited. It, it seems like it went. They managed to raise enough money. They had like, you know, they had constant flooding, which is great for wood type mm-hmm. and yeah. <laughs> other such. But, but yeah, you know, it's kind of like it's it's a mecca for, uh, you know, it's the, it's the cathedral you go to. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people I know that is like the, you know, I'm going to make the pilgrimage because it's the only place left that's like that. There's no ATF, the American Type Founders. There's no factory for that anymore. There's nowhere else mm-hmm. you go for type except to to Rivers, Wisconsin. And yeah. was that for inspiration and, or for training or or both? It was for inspiration. Mm. Um, I I kind of was tagging along with uh, my friend Rory, who uh, she she knew the the Morans, Jim and Bill, and um, she's also a letterpress printer and a bookbinder. She had made arrangements to kind of go out there and and teach a workshop and um, have access to the studio for a while. And she very generously invited me to come along and made sure that was okay with them. And I just thought, you know, this is such a great opportunity. So I went out there for three weeks in January. So this is like northeast Wisconsin in January. And it was just, you know, I mean, it was a it was a blizzard every single day. So all oh. you wanted to do was stay inside <laughs> and play with type. And it was a dream come true. Wow. Um, you know, I got to help a little bit with some of their stuff, you know, print some some little kind of promotional things, little projects that they had. And kind of the, the trade for that was having access to their print shop to to work on my own projects. And that's, I ended up printing the... One of the backer rewards for my Kickstarter there using their collection of type, which was such a treat. And so I spent three weeks there just kind of playing with type. You know, I hadn't really had access to much wood type in my life, in my printing life. I'd mostly worked with polymer. Yeah, few people have. have. I mean, if you don't go there, there's very – I was going to ask about that later too, but it's the it's very hard to acquire it. Even mm-hmm. if you, you go to curio shops and they're selling big pieces of like, you know, circus type, you know, big old circus typeface mm-hmm. kind of things. Or it, For like it, 10 bucks a piece. Yeah, because someone's <laughs> going to hammer it into the wall and it's going to have yeah. their family – their initials or something. But like actually getting sets of, of wood type, there's just – I mean, all the shops – when there was this interregnum where – Letterpress commercial shops shut down, and the new interest in it wasn't there, and everything went in the dumpster for like mm-hmm. ten or, or fifteen or burn, yeah, for ten or fifteen years, or got broken up and sold to you know bric-a-brac places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, to see just the um, 
the sheer volume of type and the beautiful, I mean, there's so many beautiful fonts that they have there. And a lot of it is, is kind of on display, but there is, I mean, they have, they have a huge print shop. That's a working print shop where, you know, everything in that room is usable. So you could just kind of pull from all these different cases and, and just print. And it was so much fun, so inspiring. And they also Hamilton, because this was, this was right after, this was a week after my Kickstarter ended. So of course I was all, fired up about making plans and so I was talking to Jim a lot about my plans and he he got excited about the the project and um he very generously donated the sign press that I did most oh, of my work that's on. Wonderful. So that was a that was a gift from Hamilton kind of as a sponsor. Um which was which was a huge vote of confidence. I mean just I respect them so much and they're such a legend in the in the printing industry that that was a really important thing. They're about the nicest guys in the world, too. They uh, really are. It's, just, it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. And then you also got this really interesting vote of confidence, too, from like the – so that's the descendants of the wood type industry all wound <laughs> up there. The descendants of the, the monopoly and metal type, pretty much, ATF, exactly. wound up yep. in a new outfit called Dale Guild Foundry, which was, was until recently really the last place, I think, in the world making foundry type. There might be – I'm not sure outside the United States, but I gather that Dale Guild might have been it. But that was built on the remains of like equipment acquired and the last employee essentially of ATF doing that. Dale Guild, didn't they sponsor you as well? They, they got they you did. some type? Yeah, it was, it was incredible. It, it came right on the heels of the Hamilton thing. Um, oh, it's neat. And uh, they just, they very generously donated, I think, four or five kind of small sets of types. So I had some ornaments and this is all lead types. So it was some really beautiful, intricate ornaments and I think three different fonts and all small metal type, which was so great because I had a little bit of wood type with me and then just this very small collection of lead type. And there was one package, like beautiful little chipboard package with all the tiny little pieces of type in it and i just i kept that one intact i never printed from it because i <laughs> i loved the thrill of opening it it was 10 point type so it was a little bitty very stuff. hard to print and just showing ad, people yeah. well yeah that too but but just just showing people what you know a full font looked like it was it kind of blew their minds you know i said this yeah, this is 10 point this is what you use on your mm-hmm. computer but this is what it looks like in the flesh Let's take a break from tight for just a minute to talk about some other stuff. Our sponsor, Bespoke Post, offers a really interesting box of cool stuff of the month club. Now, before you think this is like those old CD deals where stuff's going to show up and you have to send it back, it's not like that at all. What Bespoke Post does is it makes a collection of things together that are interesting to guys. That includes clothes and shaving equipment and ties, but also things that will be of interest to a much broader range of genders as well, including mixology equipment and games and food. It's, It's a cool bunch of stuff they curate, pick the best of, stick in a box, and it's $45 a box. When you subscribe, you're not just sent boxes. You get notified on the first of every month of what the current box is, and then you have until the fifth to say that you don't want it. And then they don't send it. And because this is via email, when you're on the beach in Hawaii, you'll get the email. You'll say, hey, no, 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 I don't, I don't need more socks. Hold on to the socks and shoes, but the next month when they have the kit of drinking supplies or manicure equipment or a cool bag of the style that people used to carry on airplanes back when air travel was sort of cool, well, you might want that one. So if you like this sort of thing, it's great. Sign up for yourself. It's also, I would say, a terrific gift for someone else. 
The box may cost $45, but the retail cost of all the items separately is always higher. It's always a deal, and you can just say no if you don't want it for that month. You're not going to come back from vacation and find 150 Sinead O'Connor CDs piled up on your doorstep that you can't get rid of. It's not like that at all. It's stuff you want. It's a great gift. And you know what? I got a code for you. You can get 20% off your first box if you want to try it. Bespokepost.com slash disruptors. That's B-E-S-P-O-K-E post.com slash disruptors. Or use the account code disruptors when you sign up. Go take a look. They can show you what's in previous boxes. It's a lot of really cool stuff. Shopping is one of my least favorite things, and I also like cool stuff. So the idea of getting a box that's full of interesting things that I didn't have to go out and select myself, kind of appealing. So take a look, bespokepost.com slash disruptors, get 20% off your first box. And now let's get back to our conversation with Kyle. And how many billions and billions of pieces of that type have been printed over five, or mm-hmm. not or been cast over 500 years without going into a, you know, this, this podcast is not even an explanation of the entire process of casting <laughs> type, but it's this huge industrial enterprise, and this is the last piece of it. And so, you know, not to put too much weight into, into you, you don't have to have the, the weight of 500 years of history, but I think it's sort of funny. It's like the handing down of like, here's the wood type folks anointing you on one side and the metal type mm-hmm. on another. Go forth and spread the yeah. word of type. Kyle exactly. Exactly. It's funny. No one from the from the polymer industry contacted me though. <laughs> polymer is wonderful, but it's not as exciting. I think it's, it's exciting not. to printers, but not to people. You're like, yeah. well, it looks like a bunch of rubber. You would say, right? Or, it was cool. I always i i kept a sample. I mean, and I use polymer a lot in my in my power and light press work. But in the truck, I really wanted to show the traditional forms and I kept a sample of polymer so I could show people because invariably they'd ask well how did you get that image like I had some of my cards for sale you know how do you get a drawing like that is it all you know magnesium and so I'd have polymer to show them what other options were but um, I think only maybe once or twice did I actually print from polymer in I'll the link truck. that in the show notes too is photopolymer it's a process it's a photosensitive plate much like is used for offset actually but it can you can etch away the parts that aren't exposed and you get a relief that's rubberized and solid and you can print um, you know just like you would do with other kind of like metal letterpress type it's more resilient but it has a quality it's very digital and it's, you know it's got the hard edges and people have varying feelings about whether it's accurate enough to you know there's this whole aesthetical issue but aesthetic issue but you can the thing is with photopolymer dear listeners you can actually like <laughs> set a book and do it in real time instead of spending you know 14 months to, <laughs> to set the type of a book right. so people go to photopolymer in order to then sort of put their effort and, ex- and the output time their craftsmanship into the printing part as opposed to the hand composition or even metal composition part Mm-hmm. I think it's a really important um, part of the story of, of letterpress printing. It's, yeah, it's and I kit. I appreciate it. I use it all the time, but I don't use it exclusively because I think it just in my work. I like to have a balance um, between old and new. And but I do think it's a really a really interesting way to marry you know new technology with old. And I definitely definitely value it for that. It's a lovely. I mean, right, it's a lovely thing that you can use InDesign to make letterpress plates mm-hmm. essentially, but you don't have mm-hmm. to. Still, it's just. I think that's what we. You know, it's again beyond the scope of this podcast. But that issue about the fact that it's very hard to get new type, and photopolymer gives you an option for it. And as we record this, like the Dale Guild, uh, the type foundry looks like it's breaking up a bit. The partners involved are splitting, and some of the equipment will get lost. And and the knowledge, this you know, five hundred years of knowledge, distilled into this one company. 
company, then winnowed down to this remaining company is going to be dis, you know distributed a bit. So there's going to be some lost mm-hmm. knowledge. Already is a lot about the, this craft because it's no longer uh, necessary. But you went out and showed people, you know, this is what it was like, and this is what you can still do with it. So, so you raise the money, you do this, right. you, you have your contemplation, you go visit mm-hmm. your cathedral of type, mm-hmm. you're, you're anointed, and now right, you got to right. get the van equipped, but then uh, yeah. in retrofit then it's and so down forth. to logistics. Yeah, then um, you hit the road. Right. Well, so my next, I, I had a two-phase residency, as I like to call it, and so <laughs> the next phase was, again, now it's February, and I decided to go to Maine, where it's also snowing, and so I holed up in my friend's little apartment above their garage and, you know, had, had a little studio apartment to myself for a month. And I just, I basically, you know, every day I'd wake up and make a pot of coffee and sit down and look at a map and look at a calendar and start, (laughs) you know, looking places up being like, where am I, where am I going to go? I had those, you know, 15 or so points on the map from the Kickstarter backers. The beautiful thing about Kickstarter is, well, there were so many things that were beautiful about that experience, but one of them was that even people who donated at, you know, five and ten dollars often would send me a message and say, Hey, I wish I could give more, but I can't. But, you know, I have this gallery in uh ooh, can you hear that thunder in the background? Oh, that was amazing, yeah. Yeah, we're getting it's monsoon season here in New Mexico, so Whoa. we're finally getting some rain. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, people people would say, you know, I, I can't give more, but I, I want to tell you about this place in my town or in, you know, my friends have this cool community center in some town that I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Places that I would probably never would have found on my own, even in my research of potential venues. And, and that just opened up a whole new world. That whole month that I spent in Maine was just all about discovery and figuring out where I wanted to go, what kind of people I wanted to interact with, um, you know how far off the interstate can I get without losing my shirt and, you know, running out of gas. This brings Um, up that point that's great about Kickstarter that I don't think is overlooked typically, but I love to emphasize is that you had 350 backers, your project, they're all, they have a piece of you now, like in the best way, like they have a stake Mm -hmm. in your success, not just because they want to get something from you, which is, you know, some part of it is that, and it varies depending on the project. They want to give something to you because you let them help you, get to this stage. Now they're like, okay, you got the truck. Come to, you know, Sheboygan. We really, we have this festival mm-hmm. and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go like, I know I've seen this happen. Uh, there's so many people I know have done Kickstarters where they'll have a backer who doesn't even know people in the town involved in whatever the field or thing is. And they'll go walk around the city and knock on doors and make opportunities, collect business cards mm-hmm. and call up the Kickstarter project person and say, okay, you could do a show here. Like I found you a venue. I found you a place yeah. to rent chairs, speakers. Let's go. You know, it's, it's so great. cool. It really, I think it, a lot. Of, a lot of times, it brings out the best in people who just want to see stuff happen. You know, to like and help make stuff happen, um, whether it's going to directly benefit them or not. Exactly. I think it's um, it's a really interesting thing that has evolved over the past couple of years. And you were looking at both, I mean, there were individuals you were going to go see who were some backers, and then was it festivals and fairs and things? Like, what was the focus of, uh, I mean, and I know I guess there were also shops too, but did you, mm-hmm. were you looking at, at the kinds of uh, venues or, or like a, a events that it would make sense to pull up at? Yeah, well, the thing that was really neat is that the more I thought about it and the more places I contacted, I realized how many different ways there are to approach letterpress printing or or just this thing that I was doing. You know, there are people who are interested in, in printing and in history, design and typography, 
art and other hands-on processes, people who are travel enthusiasts. You know, I really, like, it opened up so many different venues, potential venues. You know, so I, I was contacting farmers markets and craft shows and mm. art schools and elementary schools and universities, galleries, print shops, handmade boutiques. I got to say... This is when your gender is an advantage because a guy traveling around in a truck saying, I'm calling up elementary schools would probably yeah. have a harder time of it. <laughs> so I think it's true. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was really floored by just how open most people were to, you know, uh, oftentimes I would get an email back if I, if I sent a, a query out saying, hey, this is what I'm doing. Are you interested in, in organizing an event? Oftentimes people would be like, so I'm not quite sure I understand what you're saying, but I kind of, I'm intrigued. So go on. Mm -hmm. I came up against very little resistance, which was in that sense, what I was doing varies wildly from a band booking a tour where oftentimes (laughs) you just, you don't get a call back or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got eight other shows booked this week. So, you know, what's special about what you're doing? I think my pitch was different enough that it it caught people's attention. And I think that, I mean, that helped me. It, it, It definitely helped me. In many cases, you weren't charging, but sometimes you did workshops and, and uh, mm-hmm. were selling pieces. I know that you raised a little money along the way, too, to help fund expenses. Like, uh, yeah. I did, a, I did a quick calculation, and you say on your site your van gets eight miles a gallon, and you drove 40,000 <laughs> miles. That's $20,000 in gas over the last couple of years. It's staggering. Um, I did that calculation myself when I got home last summer, and <laughs> I almost had a heart attack. Sure. <laughs> oh, my God. It's horrible. Yeah, I had some very real expenses, and, and fortunately, gas was essentially – you know, that was, that was all, of course I had to, you know, buy food and things like that, but people were incredibly generous about feeding me at different stops along the way. So my food expenses were minimal, but gas was staggering. (laughs) And another scary thing was that that 17 grand or 15, whatever ended up in my pocket after, you know, various fees, that was all gone before I left in June. You know, I had really underestimated everything about this whole, getting the whole project off the ground. And I hadn't thought about, I really hadn't thought about how much the build out would cost of the truck. I was, I was spot on with the cost of the truck, but then, you know, there was the renovation. And since I had a little bit more money to play with, I, I decided to do it, to do a good job and to really make a solid, sturdy structure inside there rather than, I think my original idea was like, oh, I'll just get some secondhand kitchen cabinets and like hammer them into place. And those probably would have like lasted for a month and then rattled apart, you know, before I, you know, made it past the continental divide. So I was able to to spend more money on on a really solid construction of the cabinetry, um, and then there were truck repairs to do. You know, this is a thirty year old truck, so there was it was in it was in good shape. The guy that I bought it from had taken really good care of it, but there was still work to be done. And I also hadn't factored in the fact that building the truck and booking the tour and just doing all the logistical work it turned into a full time job, mm-hmm. and um, I had to cut way back on my on my normal paying work. And so to a certain point, I was living off of some of that money for those six months before I left, you know, and I, I moved, I moved out of my house and I moved in with my brother and his wife for a few months to save on rent and, you know, really minimize my expenses. But there were just so many things I had underestimated about the whole, uh, 
process of, of planning the trip. So, that's, that's so I traditional. Left. You're not alone. Yes. As you know, that is absolutely, yeah. it's, it's also, the money expands to fill whatever hole there is. Oh yeah. The more money oh, yeah. you raise, the more it goes into the hole. But, but you know, then you, by making it a better van, you got to, you know, uh, you're able to put more in, have a more rich experience and mm-hmm. you were sleeping in it a lot of the time too. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure in the end oh, yeah. that wound up better than say, you know, the motel experience on Lonely oh, Roads yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, the sleeping in the van was really, that was really key. I mean, that, that was, I, I felt so connected at all times, for better or for worse, with that truck. <laughs> and for the most part, I loved it. I mean, there you know, there are definitely times when I stayed in motels for whatever reason, whether it was weather related or because someone else was paying for it, or because you know there was a stretch about about six months in where I really hit a wall and I was just exhausted, and all I wanted to do was you know at the end of after an event was to go to a motel and like take a bath and watch TV. <laughs> and, you know, so I definitely treated myself to that when I needed it. But, um, but I also, I felt very disconnected in those moments from the whole experience. And so sleeping in the truck. Oh, was, have you read walk, uh, was it walk in the woods, the Bill Bryson book about walking the Appalachian Trail? Not. Well, there's I a funny thing, which is he's on the trail for a pretty big time. And occasionally he and his buddy is orange soda, li- loving couch, um, potato buddy who goes on this crazy walk with them. <laughs> Occasionally, they're like, "There's a town nearby. We're going to a motel. We're going to go to room service and sleep in a mm-hmm. bed." Yeah, yeah. It's those moments were so sweet when, when like, when you're really craving it. It just there's nothing better <laughs> than a forty dollar a night motel and uh, some HBO. Um, you had, so you had this eleven month first run where you were mostly on the road over that time. Or there, there were times you had yeah. off, but it was. Um, I remember looking at your schedule at the time and thinking, "This is pretty." packed um how did that go i mean that's a that's a a band doing that would be out of their minds and you're (laughs) on your own for most of it how did that whole thing work out it was it was incredible and exhausting and um i really didn't take time off i think i took five days off at christmas to go see my dad and, and catch up with family but i never went back home i never flew anywhere i was on the road that entire time and you know oftentimes i would i would go for two or three weeks without even taking a day off. Um, and, and because, because driving, even if I didn't have an event, driving from town to town was an, an, an event and it was work in and of itself. And there was always booking to be done. So I would often, you know, drive six hours and then find a place to park the truck and try to steal someone's internet signal and catch up on emails and <laughs> book the next week of the tour. It was nonstop. And I, I really hadn't anticipated um, or maybe I had anticipated how much work it would be, but I, I wasn't fully aware of, of how much work it would be and how exhausting it would be. But, you know, it was exhilarating at the same time. Um, I was pretty sure I'll direct people to your website because it is pretty astonishing. I'm just scrolling down as we talk here about the number, just the sheer number of cities you went to. And right, I got you on like mm-hmm. the second or like, you know, the second day or so of the, well, I guess you'd been in Port Townsend first, but I went there first. Yeah. yeah. Little, nice little town. Great place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the farthest corners you could be at in the United States actually. Yeah. And, yep. you know, wound up in Maine and back. And I mean, this is a pretty staggering schedule, but you felt pretty rewarded at the end of this, didn't you? I recall oh. when it was over and it seemed like you had very little to say that wasn't positive about, about spending all this time. Absolutely. It was, it was the, I mean, it's to date, you know, the, the most transformative experience of my life for so many reasons. You know, I got to see so much of the country and, you know, all four corners of the country, like you said, Port Townsend, Eastport, Maine, Key West, Florida, San Diego, California. Like I really got all the bases covered. The only state, the only continental state that I missed was, um, North Dakota. And, um, 
I really just got to see so much and see so many different landscapes and, and see different sized towns and, and all the people that live in them and all the spaces in between. And then I also just really got to know myself, as you can imagine, when you're mm-hmm. traveling by yourself for 11 months. It really pushed me outside of my comfort zone to communicate and just be more comfortable. I've, you know, as, as a printer, I spend a lot of time alone normally in my <laughs> studio and, and I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm most comfortable when I'm by myself. But being in these intensely social situations at all these events I was doing, I just had to loosen up and get comfortable hearing my own voice and having people treat me like the center of attention. That that was very difficult for a while, but, um, you know, you get used to it and you learn from it. And I think I've, I'm better for it. And the interesting thing about that kind of travel was that it was these long stretches of, of isolation where I was driving by myself, punctuated by these very social environment, you know, like oh, three hours yeah. of like, oh, there's a hundred people that I just <laughs> talked to, like what just happened? And then the next day I wouldn't talk to anyone. So it was very like the, the pacing of it was really kind of frenetic in, in a way. And it was kind of, you jump back and forth between, between extremes. Um, That's either the introvert's uh, nightmare or the introvert's yeah. <laughs> dream. I'm not sure which. It's like, okay, now yeah. I get away from people for the next the next few days. I saw you at one point along, I think it was like a second tour in 2012 because uh, the XOXO Festival, which I mentioned right. on every other podcast, which is an amazing mm-hmm. thing. Of course you were there because you're mm-hmm. living in, you were a Portlander at that point mm-hmm. still. And um, I don't know, they invited you to, to be part of this, right? Because they were trying to get people who were involved in sort of any part of this sort of new economy, artist, direct connection thing and mm-hmm. unique. And so, you know, I, I come up to the venue and it's like, there's all the food trucks. I'm like, oh, and there's Kyle's truck right there, of course. <laughs> and hundreds, of course, hundreds and hundreds of people at the event, plus hundreds of people just coming for the marketplace thing they did who didn't weren't uh, paying for the conference part. Mm-hmm. That must have been sort of intense, too, because it wasn't just people at a fair passing by, but it was some of the most intense people interested in the space of like personal creativity and Kickstarter mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. One of the things I thought was most hilarious about that, because it was it was really a, a tech conference, you know, kind of a yeah, creative technology of, yeah, conference. Yeah. But it uh, everyone's name badges had their Twitter handle on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was that was really amusing to me. And, and also, like, it was kind of around the same time that I was understanding Twitter more as as you know from me getting set up on the computer today. It's not, <laughs> I'm not like super savvy when it comes to. Um, but it's such a perfect – yeah, when you're spread out like that, when you have people – now you know – I mean there's thousands upon thousands of people you know who are spread in a thin layer across the country like Twitter mm-hmm. versus Facebook, which is sort of for strong bonds. Like Twitter for loose bonds yeah. is a way that you can stay in some kind of – you know, then the next time you announce a tour, you say, hey, I'm going to go to – I want to go to Sheboygan or something. Mm-hmm. Anybody there and they'll say yes and I can, I'll bring 20 people to the event too. Yeah. Yeah, the the network that's out there that I was able to tap into is – is vast and it and I love it. I mean, it even now when I go on just a regular road trip, like without the truck, I have new friends that I can go see and new event spaces that I want to go back to. And it's just, I mean, it's just opened up this whole new world, and it I I love it. Well, you've done a couple more rounds of of touring. I know you have a very hilarious, in retrospect, I'm sure your most <laughs> recent entry in the block is about uh, the trip from hell, where truck you know truck problems and the weather and so mm-hmm. forth. Several months in, in the winter, uh, not not this beautiful summer we're having, of course, the monsoon right. weather behind you as we speak. Uh, <laughs> but so that, you know, so you've you've had a few more go rounds of this. Is this now part of your thing? Are you a are you a occasional itinerant and a and a permanent new Mexican, uh, or I mean, where does your heart lie? 
going forward. A lot of people do Kickstarter campaigns, then come back and they say, I've met so many people, I'm going to do another Kickstarter to do the next thing. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there a next thing or is this the thing? Um, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of figuring that out. You know, I, it's feeling really good to have, an, have a new home and to kind of settle into my life here in New Mexico. I have my own, uh, you know, brick and mortar print shop now, which, um, like <laughs> everything I was struggling with before is, uh, is a tether, you know, in Portland, at least it was a community shop. So I could leave and it would, it would still be there when I got back. If I leave this place, I need to keep paying my rent and producing, my work, uh, figuring out my, my business, like balancing that with the idea of traveling more with the truck is, is something I'm struggling with a little bit right now. Right now I am really enjoying being in one place, not driving that truck. And, um, but I, I know there will be another truck tour at some point in the future. Well, I would think so. Cause you are a bit, I mean, obviously you like peace and quiet because you are a bit in the middle of nowhere. Yes. Practically the definition. If you were a little farther north, you would be in the middle of nowhere. But you're very close. Yes. <laughs> very close to it in New Mexico. Was that a conscious choice? Did you want to find some quiet and then use that as a place to come out of instead of being maybe – I mean, not like Portland is the most bustling city in the world, but it is a pretty mm-hmm. busy place. Yeah, that would definitely – I mean, that's what my partner and I were, were seeking. We had both been in Portland for a number of years and, and love it. It's an incredible city and we learned so much. It was a great place to – you know, for me to start my printing business and for him to kind of get his music more established and have a band. But we both work better and with a little bit more solitude. And we've been visiting, I have family in New Mexico, and we've been visiting friends down here for a few years and always really loved our time here and just thought, you know, I think we're kind of at a point in our lives where we want, we want to work hard and we want to focus and, you know, we can get we're both travelers. We can get out in the road and be social anytime we want to, as long as we have kind of a quiet, stable place to come home to. So that was the real draw. And it's been great. I mean, I've, I've been more productive, felt more creative since I moved here than I've, than I've felt in years. And a lot of that was, was kind of feeding off the energy that came from all these travels. Finally having a, a space, physical space and mental space to make work again. Because when I was traveling, I, you know, there was never time to make my own work, even though I was printing every single day. I was mostly printing with other people and not kind of pursuing my own ideas. But I was keeping notes and keeping a sketchbook and a journal. And so the past year has been about kind of seeing some of those ideas come to life. And I think this move has been really, really, uh, constructive in that sense. Well, that's kind of wonderful. Well, we come back to the the beginning of what we were talking about too, is that that, that point where you were having trouble doing your own work, you branched mm-hmm. out into something new, and now you found a new place. You have had mm-hmm. this multi-year phantasmagoric experience of travel yeah. and miles, paid all that money in gas, and, and it seems like you've, <laughs> you've found a center that's off the beaten path, but it's not it's not too far to get there. And the other thing, of course, this is the wonder of the future, is you obviously have good internet service. Yeah, and, yeah. And that's that's the miracle. I mean, I've been to small towns where um, I mean, it's astonishing. Sometimes small towns have better service because it's new than mm-hmm. bigger towns because they had to they had to stick it in, you know, last year or five years ago, not twenty. And uh, right, the new infrastructure helps. There's some great small towns with like fiber optic infrastructure. Yeah, <laughs> if you're in the absolutely. right spot. But uh, but it seems like that really makes it possible. So you're not off the grid. You may not be on the on the beaten track, but you're not uh, you're not inaccessible either. Exactly. Yeah. There was there was something about. Um, I mean, that's that that's a huge kind of lifeline. You know, it does allow you to to move out into a more remote area and not lose your sense of connectivity with 
with your peers and your friends and your family. And there, there was something about Portland that as much as I love it and think it's a really amazing city, um, it was feeling a bit oversaturated for me. You know, I kind of felt like, oh, everywhere I turn, there's someone opening up a letterpress shop. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it almost felt like, which, which is kind of amazing, you know, that it can support that and that there's that sort of creative community. Um, but for me personally, I, I was feeling, I started feeling like what I was the things I was trying to do felt redundant and oh. I just kind of would, I felt like I would rather go to a place where I could not, it's not about being a, a big fish in a small pond at all. It's more just like, I can't, I want more of a vacuum around me. I think that's where I do better work when I'm not so aware of everything else creative that's happening. I just want to like go into my studio and figure my own stuff out and, and, you know, have, keep one ear open to, to what's going on out there. But I found it a little bit, strangely, I found it a little bit creatively stifling to be in such a creative place as Portland. That's interesting. Well, it is, I mean, it is sort of crazily creative. It's, mm-hmm. it's not affordable anymore either. And yet people keep moving there and trying to start up new careers. But I mean, it's, it's become expensive. It's, it is, it's yeah. uh, pretty, you know, it's a happening place. They've got so much right that's going on. But you know, what's funny is I've talked to a lot of people on the podcast who get involved in collaborative spaces, but I think there's many different kinds of personalities and some people thrive off that it's a multiplying effect some people as you say i mean if you're stifled by it, it's a it's a divisive effect and you can't mm-hmm. find your own voice not because as you say you're not trying to be a big fish you're not trying to speak through a megaphone but it's hard mm-hmm. to hear your own thoughts it's what it sounds yeah, like you're saying definitely with all definitely. the creative noise. i mean that's well it sounds like you found the right place to park the truck and i uh, it's so great mm-hmm. to catch up with what you've been up to uh, yeah. and um i'll direct readers to your website so they can see if the type truck is coming to a town near them in the future sounds good and, and yeah i'm sure i'm sure it will be at some point do you think a, a little a little break here from that rig, that schedule you've had mm-hmm. let, let the truck heal and yourself exactly <laughs> yes that might take a while <laughs> well thanks thanks for being on the podcast thank you so much it's been great to catch up with you and and kind of revisit some tales from the road You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time.